Welcome to the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm your host, Selena Alvey, the Marketing and Communications Manager at BookNet. To help celebrate Canada's 150th birthday, we've been busy these last few weeks publishing a list of the 150 best-selling Canadian books of the last 10 years, investigating the Canadian identity through keywords, posting some fun Canlet quizzes on our blog, and a few other bits and pieces. To cap off the month, we're sitting down with Sue Carter, Editor-in-Chief at Quill Inquire, Canada's magazine for the book publishing industry, to talk about the current state of the publishing landscape, what challenges we're facing, and what Canadians think of Canadian books. We also discuss some statistics from our most recent research reports, including what book buyers think of Canadian books and who the most well-known Canadian author is. And of course, we speculate on what the book industry might look like in another 50 years. Enjoy. So Quill Inquire has been around since 1935, uh, initially as a magazine about stationery and then later adding books into the mix. Uh, it wasn't actually until the early 70s that its main focus became the book trade in Canada. Uh, around the same time, the Association of Canadian Publishers was formed out of what was previously the Independent Publishers Association. And this was shortly after the centennial in 1967, when the national government was increasing funding for publishers and small presses began to crop up, like Arsenal Pulp Press, House of Anansi, and Coach House Books. Obviously, Canadian authors had been writing books and people have been buying them for much longer than that, uh, but it was often an offshoot of the American industry. For example, uh, Anne of Green Gables is a beloved Canadian classic that was published by a firm in the US when it came out in 1908. So the publishing side seems to have taken off in those 50 intervening years, which makes our industry relatively young compared to some other countries. So how far do you think we've come in those years in terms of Canadian books and publishers standing on their own in our own market? Do you think we still have far to go? Well, it's funny because um, we do have all the archives uh, here at work, and so it's really fun to go back and look at all the old issues from the, the 70s and 80s. And what strikes me about when Quill and Choir first uh, started um, really focusing on the publishing industry is that they were able to review and list every single book that was produced in Canada. And there is no way that we could do that now. So just the mm-hmm. sheer um, volume and the increase of books that between the 70s and now, I think... It signals some health. I think sometimes maybe we publish too many books in this country. It, it's, it, it can be difficult for people to find all of those books. Mm-hmm. But, um, and we are still in a market that's um, dominated by multinationals. But, but I do feel like Canadian publishers, such as the ones that you um, just um, brought up initially, are still around. They're still thriving. Um, I see there's still regional publishing that is relatively healthy. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm always buoyed by news, for instance, that like the Vancouver's Writers Festival last year hit record numbers in terms of attendance and um, books sold. So I think there's a appreciation from readers as well. Um, and one of the really nice things that I think, and we wrote about a couple um, in our September issue, is the fact that there's a lot of people are still starting out little niche publishing houses. Um, there's a couple out of Montreal um, that I think um, it tends to be younger publishers who want to try something different and they don't feel bound for, by traditional sort of publishing rules. Like they're finding things out on their own. They're using online and social media in different ways. And so to me, that's the health of an industry that you can have the multinationals, but then you can also have a, a two-person shop, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you, know, you know, surviving. 
So our latest study looks at the reading habits and perceptions of book buyers in Canada when it comes to Canadian books. Since it's an update to two studies that were published by the Association of Canadian Publishers in 2002 and by us in 2012, we've been able to look at the changes that have taken place over time. One of the things that we looked at was the number of Canadian book buyers who had read a book by a Canadian author in the past year. Uh, between 2012 and 2017, that number went up from 24% to 44%. Similarly, those who reported having read a book on a Canadian subject went up from 22% to 41%. And the rest of the respondents either said no or that they were unsure. Uh, does that increase surprise you? Um, not really. Um, I think a couple things have happened. I think um, there's awards, award culture has really has been increasing and sort of crept up. I think there's a more awareness of Giller Prize and called the Giller Effect in terms of um, winners tend to become bestsellers in this country. I think even just having it televised, I think, makes a big difference. Um, you can't argue with the Canada Reads effect as well, which I think has um, done a lot in terms of bringing books that, you know, and the thing that I like about Canada Reads is that it's back often backlist books too, so it's not necessarily new releases, so people are discovering old classics as well, which I think is important. Um, and I think we've had some sort of non-traditional blockbusters in the last couple of years. I mean, uh, you can't deny uh, the success of Chris Hadfield, and <laughs> regardless of what you think of him as an author yeah. or an astronaut, um, he was, I spoke, I remember speaking to indie booksellers and his dedication to going out to events and signing everybody's books when the lineups would be out the door. Um, I think that year really helped in terms of um, helping some of those indie booksellers sustain um, for that year. Um, I think people like uh, Instagram poet Rupi Carr, I think like she single-handedly increased poetry sales in this country. So I think we have our own blockbusters now too, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And I also think that we've seen Canadian authors stand on their own and respond to sort of international trends so like there's the paula hawkins girl on a train but then you know sherry lapina's book also became uh the number one best-selling book mm -hmm. in canada so i think and has traveled well internationally so i think that there's definitely um there are more opportunities for people to find those books i guess and and hopefully then as, as a result maybe discover other canadian authors uh, looking internationally, uh, Canada will be the guest of honor at the Frankfurt Book Fair in 2020. Uh, recently, Margaret Atwood's been having kind of a moment, if you will, in the U.S., thanks to The Handmaid's Tale. And, of course, there is a long list of Canadian books that sold successfully outside of our borders. Uh, what's your take on how Canadian publishing is perceived internationally? I think that any hang-ups we have about Canadian publishing are basically our own. Um, <laughs> in terms of... One, one thing, the number of increased translations coming into Canada, so the number of acquisitions that um, are co that Canadian publishers are making and getting world rights, English language rights for. So, you know, for instance, I look at Greystone Books, who had amazing success with the English translation of Hidden Life of Trees, which became an international bestseller. And Greystone has successfully also acquired several other um, German translations. So to me, the fact that um, other publishers and authors are looking 
speaking to Canada, Canadian publishers, as somebody who can successfully market and promote and distribute their books says something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, indie publishers such as um, you know, Biblioasis and Bookbug and Nancy have also had success with various um, European translations and, and they're acquiring smaller but really interesting titles. But I think that the one thing that really gets forgotten and we, we tend to forget in this country is how successful our children's publishing is. And I can't say enough about that. I was at Bologna a couple of years ago and I was just blown away by the response um, from other publishers around the world to um, Canadian children's books and, and children's publishers. Um, we're always winning awards there, whether it's best publisher or best titles. Um, and we're, we're known for being socially progressive and innovative and really producing quality work and I think also some of the best illustrators in the world as well. Hmm. Do any particular titles or anything st- stand out to you in that regard? Um, there's there's a whole list of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I think um, there's been, well John Klassen I mean his, is right. international. Yeah. I mean a lot, a lot of these authors have also left the country, some of them, um, but I mean his books you can't uh, deny the, the uh, impact of those and then I would see like illustrators like Sidney Smith um, and the beautiful Sidewalk Flowers um, that um, uh, the with John Arno Larson. I hope I just got that right. Um, who it's it's a it's a wordless book. Um, it's a wordless poem, but the illustrations in the story is is it's just exquisite. And then also I would say um, Fanny Britt and Isabel Arsenault, who have a new graphic novel coming out this fall. Um, that I actually cried when they when Nancy gave me that just even the excerpt from it. It's just a beautiful story. Oh, lovely. Yeah. A little, a little sad, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, there's so much talent and that's only a couple of them that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people forget that Juvenile is a huge, just has a huge, huge market share Absolutely. in Canada. I mean, it's more than, um, nonfiction or fiction. Yeah. yeah. And, and the crossover effect of that, I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that we can all recognize now and understand that adults enjoy YA just as much and Absolutely. it's acceptable to be on the subway and read a YA title now. So. Yes. So on a related note, we also asked Canadian book buyers to name any any Canadian author, and Margaret Atwood ran away with it with 37% of responses, followed by I don't know at 20%, and Robert Munch at 4%. Uh, I would say that's mostly the result of The Handmaid's Tale being popular right now, but she was actually also at the top of the list in 2012 with 20% of responses. Uh, why do you think she's become the go-to Canadian author? I mean, Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize and she only got 2% of responses. I'm surprised actually that Robert Munch is that low because every single time I look at an annual bestseller list, I'm mm-hmm. always amazed by how many Robert Munch titles there are and, and how many new generations are discovering him. But um, with Margaret Atwood, I think it's Twitter. I mean, she's mm-hmm. to- she's totally accessible. She actually responds and retweets like it doesn't feel like a one-way conversation. Um, she's involved in causes and I think she's she seems curious like she actually asks questions back and and is engaged um and she's also a good representative of high and low culture like there's no there doesn't seem to be any snobbery in it you you know she'll get her photo taken at you know comic-con you know she's done graphic novels but i think also it's kind of funny she's i was i had a cab driver um recently who was friends with her and apparently 
she called him while he was in a cab and he had a client in the back, a customer in the back, and she, the woman in the back knew right away who that voice was. <laughs> and I think that's probably the only author in Canada whose voice immediately yes. people would know. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, she's probably the one Canadian author my mom could name as exactly. well. Exactly. Mom rule, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one, yeah. Uh, so in the same study, when we asked Canadian book buyers to tell us what comes to mind when they hear the term Canadian books, the answers were a fairly predictable mix of words like history, good, <laughs> wilderness, hockey, boring, and relatable. A couple of standout quotations were, usually interesting but perhaps slightly strange books, and I think we are just too nice and the book is boring. Does that more or less line up with what you imagine to be the average Canadian book buyer's perception of Canadian books? And do you think it's accurate? (laughs) It's so funny because you get in those sentences, you get like interesting and boring, (laughs) strange and nice. And I think like the problem is that, and the reality is that, you know, Canadian publishing is not a monolith. Um, but people still think it is, and I wish there was a, a nice way to convince people otherwise. Um, but I don't blame readers so much. You know, part of the thing is that we, as I said before, we do publish a lot of books in this country, and I think it's overwhelming. So people do go to what rely on what's in front of them. Um, I have a lot of friends who, quite honestly, couldn't tell you if the book that they were reading was from a Canadian author or not. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few exceptions, I think, like Terry Fallis is one that um, I know people read that is very definitely Canadian, but for the most part, a lot of my friends are have no clue at all. But it really isn't a monolith. Like I think if people were able to find these books, and, and I don't know the best way, um, still struggling, I know everybody's struggling in terms of di- you know discoverability, and um, but there's just like, amazing translations coming out of Quebec. I think indigenous publishing and authors right now are, I think we're starting to see a lot more recognition of the amazing work that's being done there. More stories from LGBTQ writers and, and like we have Healthy Graphica, like our, our graphic novels are fantastic. Um, and so I wish that um, there was a nice <laughs> way we could all um, promote those that you know cut through the buzz sometimes I guess and it's it's hard too because you're not just you're just not competing with other books from other countries or big blockbusters I think you're also always going to be competing with Netflix and and various other forms of entertainment and quite honestly a reduced media um, presence as well you know book sections have mm-hmm gotten progressively smaller so yeah a good portion of the responses we got from our survey were just i don't know yeah unsure Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so that's uh that's definitely part of the equation yeah and i mean i don't i don't i certainly don't blame readers at all it is it is overwhelming so Mm -hmm. at the same time general impressions of canadian books have improved since 2012 uh, today, 84% of book buyers say they're either moderately, somewhat, or very impressed, versus 70% in 2012. Uh, but, this, but and this is entirely anecdotal, our studies generally get at least a few comments about Canadian books being hard to find or identify. So, I mean, do you think there's, um, do you think retailers and publishers are doing enough to highlight and promote Canadian books to consumers? Uh, what could they be doing more of, or do you think, like, they're doing as much as they possibly can? I think that with this year with the 150 there I've definitely seen 
an effort. I mean, but obviously something isn't sinking in if we're still in that sort of like all books in Canada take place in a wheat field kind of mentality. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't, I don't think it's specific publishers' faults. I mean, it is an industry that is dominated by large players, um, re- both on the retail and the publishing side. So it is. I mean, again, it is really difficult to, like, how are you going to convince readers to, to, on a smaller, you know, more experimental title if they can't find it, if that, if that is what they're looking for. Um, but what I am uh, always grateful for and believe that we still have in this country is that there are booksellers who still continue to hand sell their favorite titles, and I think that um, that is a fantastic thing, and I think we've seen... Um, uh, a bit more of a stabilization in terms of retail so um, I think that that's a good sign I don't think we've completely recovered but I think um, book selling there's been several independent booksellers that have opened this year and seem to be doing well and have been embraced by their local neighborhoods which I think is fantastic so I think as long as those people are out there and on the front lines I think we'll be okay Um, and this is a totally off topic thing but it is related to it I think that there has been a real push for publishers to tell all their authors that they need to be on social media promoting their books all the time that they um, if you don't have a large social media pro you know following if you're not always out there promoting then like nobody's gonna care well I, I think it I don't think it works I think it works for some authors who are very comfortable with it and their books lend themselves to that mm-hmm. but I think that not every author is destined to be a social media star and in fact can hurt them in some sort of way. So I, I don't think that that advice and I'm, you know, is necessarily the best for everybody. Yeah, I think people have a pretty good gauge for authenticity Absolutely. on social media. So mm-hmm. it's not a, it's definitely not a one size fits all strategy, no, I suppose. No, And I mean, I think some people have grown and learned how to use it and, and um, but yeah, I think definitely it's not for everybody. Uh, so you published an article in the June issue about the loss or scaling back of local bestseller lists and their impact on sales of regional titles, particularly for indie publishers. Um, indie presses tend to struggle everywhere, given that they're usually up against major blockbusters and authors like Stephen King and J.K. Rowling. Um, but do you see any particular challenges that are unique to regional titles being published by indie presses in Canada? Yeah, it's not just the loss of the local bestseller list, but also the consolidation of media means that fewer um, regional titles are getting reviewed. Um, and you have, I mean, you have areas like in Nova Scotia where the Chronicle Herald staff has been, um, they've been on strike for, I think, 18 months now. And so I like, while the paper is still running, I think things like books coverage are, are the areas that suffer. Um, you ha- in Newfoundland, I mean, they got walloped. They got faced with an increase in the, the book tax and also with library closures, which is going to impact the availability and the presence of books published by regional publishers for sure. It's a, definitely a problem there. Um, and I think even though the book retail market has recovered somewhat, there's still a lot of areas that are underserved, whether it's they don't have a local library or they... Um, they don't have a, a local bookstore anymore. And so, you, you know, you, you, you're going to see a rise, I think, of services like Amazon in those areas because that's the only way that they're going to have books delivered. And I think that Amazon isn't exactly the first place that you're going to go to find local regional titles. So I think it's definitely an issue. 
And I think also a lot with um, regional titles, a lot of them also tend to be ones that tourists pick up. And so you're also always, I mean, I think that's a perennial thing. You're always going to be at the whim of whatever's happening in that market. I know this year's great with the 150. I have a friend who's a travel agent who said that she's never had so many people want to stay in Canada or come to Canada as this year. And she also calls it the Trudeau effect. But people <laughs> are really obsessed with Canada right now. But um, there again, like, who knows? Things can change. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any other challenges that you think are currently facing the Canadian book market? Uh, generally, like on the literary side of things, book selling, anything else? What obstacles to growth are we currently facing? Yeah, that, I, I hate to say it because like I am very positive about everything, but is but when you ask me about challenges, I was able to come up with <laughs> quite a few. Um, I think publishers are getting better at publishing diverse stories, but I think they have a long way to go internally in terms of ensuring. Um, there's editors of various backgrounds and that the um, and and staff across the board, um, so that um, more balance is there. I know that there's been some efforts made, but I think there's still uh, ways to go. Um, I think that industry-wise, ever since Book Expo Canada, there's no one place where people can come and talk and learn. There are events. Um, but I think they are dissect, dissected some way and there isn't one place where everybody's coming together at once. Um, I do love, there's been an emergence of regional industry book fairs, which I think has been fantastic. And those appear to be successful. But um, I do think that there's like, nothing beats everybody being in the room at the same time and, and talking about things that are um, their challenges and successes. Um, I think the copyright review that's taking place right now, um, We'll see what happens there, and and, and uh, that certainly, in terms, in particular, with educational publishing, is going to be a very big, um, a very big deal in the, the next little bit in terms of its the interpretation of fair dealing um, in the educational system. So I think everybody's just waiting to see what's going to happen there, and so um, that's always going to continue to be an issue for writers and publishers. Um, and then I guess the final thing. Um, that worries me a bit is, and especially as a nonfiction fan, is the state of the industry for mid-list authors. Um, And Charles Foran wrote a piece about um, how much money and time he spent writing Mordecai, and it won all of those awards, and yet, you know, it's not enough money to survive on, and it's years of research, and and who can afford to write those books right Mm -hmm. now? Um, and, And with such a pressure on sales, I think, and people looking for the next blockbuster, if you don't sell enough of your own, your first book, or if you don't have that social media presence, in particular in nonfiction, the chances of getting your second or third book published, um, who knows what titles we could potentially be missing out on if, if for all these authors. I mean, like, would we have a book of Negroes if, you know... Um, now if Lawrence Hill's first book you know hadn't sold as many copies like it's just you just think about all the things that potentially we could have been missing out on so I think it's a struggle for people at that point like in their middle mid list career to be able to survive mm-hmm. do you think write. the the mid list challenge is unique to Canada right now or is it also the states is it a thing that's been I think it's across the board and you you know in like media we we should be to blame a little bit too because it does everybody wants to write about the next big thing 
and everybody want, and then everybody wants to write about the established authors. I mean, you know that Margaret Atwood is going, always going to get a lot of press, whatever she does. But I think that if you have written, let's say, you know, two to three well-respected, well-reviewed books, but maybe haven't sold a lot, I mean, it's probably going to be difficult to get that media cut, that necessary media coverage. So moving on a little bit, mm-hmm. um, in our State of Digital Publishing in Canada report that we published for 2016. Uh, We asked Canadian firms about their digital publishing programs and found that Kobo topped the list of preferred channels for ebook retail distribution, with 96% using Kobo, 93% using Amazon, and 84% using Apple, followed by Barnes & Noble and Google and a few others coming in around uh, under 60%. Meanwhile, Kobo was just profiled by the Globe and Mail as a leading ebook and e-reader retailer with a particularly strong international focus, where its Canadian-ness actually helped them break into other markets abroad. Uh, Keeping in mind, of course, that although they were sold by Indigo to the Japanese company Rakuten in 2011, they continue to operate out of Toronto. Uh, How do you account for Kobo's success, particularly against major players like Amazon and Apple? Um, What impact do you think it's had on the overall book publishing and selling landscape in Canada, if any? Um, I think they've been successful in terms of growing in international markets and languages where Amazon doesn't have the penetration or isn't there. Um, I think that they handle languages really well. Um, and I think one of the things that they've, I wasn't sure how this was going to play out, whether this was going to be their downfall or the thing that propped them up, but um, they've remained focused on the reader market. Um, whereas the other companies, um, you, you know, they're also selling watches and films and, and games and everything else. So I think that that dedication is going to build um, brand loyalty. And I think that the the underdog, somewhat underdog approach also works well for some consumers in terms of people who don't necessarily want to, to be with Amazon or Apple. And I think that um, Michael Tamlin, CEO, he, he's cultivated, you know, and I've read in various interviews, a more friendly persona to the company, which I think maybe counters the idea of like the big bad guys. So. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think the Global Mail article mentioned that they've had some success internationally for somewhat related reasons, mm-hmm. that they weren't, they didn't feel um, um, threatened by them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, they've tried things too, like I think a couple of years ago, they were putting a big push sort of on the, the self-publishing. Um, I don't think that that was necessarily as successful. It seems like they've pulled away from that, but um, I, it sounds like to me that they're still willing to... Um, their efforts are really dedicated towards writers and authors and and book lovers. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's had much of an impact on our market? I mean, having this successful Canadian e-retailer company doing well? I think so. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how, but I think there are always going to be people who are going to want to want their homegrown product and and like to know where uh, it's coming from. And, And again, I think... Canadians do kind of like that underdog. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, the little guy. Uh, so we also recently looked recently looked at how Canadian book buyers are consuming their books in terms of formats. Uh, while print, and specifically paperback, continues to be the dominant format by far, ebooks have come to account for a steady 17 to 19% of market share over the last few years, according to our consumer surveys. Uh, that's a little less in the U.S. and the U.K., where ebooks have recently accounted for around 25% of book sales, according to Nielsen. Uh, the format's come a long way, but it's still very much in its infancy. 
Meanwhile, audiobooks in Canada are also growing thanks to the rise of the digital format and smartphones for the most part, but they still only account for about 2% of the market share. Uh, do you think Canadian book buyers are less interested in digital books compared to the US and the UK? That's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty small difference. Um, I actually thought that the audiobooks would be higher than mm-hmm. um, than two percent. Um, I mean, it's still it's it's amazing to me how well they've been doing and, and been increasing. Um, I'm not sure. I do wonder about the effect of Amazon Prime in Canada versus the U.S. Because because I my understanding is that we don't have the same access. So I wonder the just the um, how large that program is there, and and whether it's really had like had the penetration here. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm. That's a that's a tough one in terms of gauging interest. But I, I think mm-hmm. I I get the sense that um, it's pretty much the same across the board. I, I don't like when I read you know the 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 kind of funny trend stories that tend to change every six months, you know, like, you know, one month it's like, oh, nobody's ever going to read an ebook again. And then, you know, six months later, the New York Times will report that, you know, ebooks are going to destroy everything. And and so um, they're always kind of fun stories. Um, But I, I really feel like there's, there hasn't been, I haven't seen much in terms of trends that I see coming out of the States that has been that different here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very much in flux and it's hard to capture sp- very uh, specific transactional you know, ebook and digital audiobook sales numbers. So it uh, remains to be seen mm-hmm. in the next few years, I think. Yeah. And I think Canadian publishers have experimented over time with trying to do sort of interesting things with bundling, mm-hmm. um, you know, using codes and whatever. I'm not sure how successful that has been in terms of um, convincing consumers that they need to buy a, a like a bundled ebook and and print book, whether that's something that they actually care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a period of experimentation, and I think consumers are open to trying things. Mm-hmm. And we'll see. Well, and it, I appreciate the fact that publishers are also willing to mm-hmm. experiment. And if things don't work, then you know don't continue. That is the beautiful thing about digital is it does allow you to do that and, and react quickly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so since you've got your finger on the pulse of the Canadian book market, uh, what do you see as the emerging trends in publishing and book selling in Canada? And uh, since we're you know, this is a Canada 150 retrospective of mm-hmm. sorts, uh, can you make a prediction of what you think? <laughs> of the, yeah, just tell oh, me exactly no. what the industry will look like in 50 years, please. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, I think in the near future, I think we're going to see more Indigenous publishing and, and Indigenous authors uh, take the stage and more diversity of stories. Um, like I mentioned before, I really hope that the publishing houses also ref- reflect more of Canadian society. Um, it has been slow, but I'm, I expect to see the slow return to more local neighborhood book- booksellers, but maybe not as we've had them in before. It might not be a traditional storefront, but like I've seen um, situations where um, people were opening summer shops um, or within another retail space. or So I think that there's opportunities that people with with rentals, like rent prices and, and leases being what they are right now in so many cities. Um, I was just out in Vancouver and, and 
just it was astonishing to me like I, I always hear about Vancouver rents but just talking to people in terms of having the publishers having to move into smaller spaces and even having difficulty looking for um, launch venues because places that they would often go would be shut down because they can't afford the rent so I think we'll see maybe see some more non-traditional um, booksellers opening up and in terms of 50 years I don't even want to um, like I just said like every six months you know it's the digital's in digital's out audiobooks are great um, story so um, if that's going to change every six months I don't know what 50 years will be yeah. well it'll be surprising it will be thanks to Sue for joining me for this month's episode you can check out quillandquire.com for more book industry news and reviews from them or visit booknetcanada.ca to see some more of our Canada 150 coverage. As always, we gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund for this project. And of course, thanks to you for listening.